You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Very short intro to the show this week, folks. I'm out of town. This is recorded well in advance, so you will be spared my thoughts about Super Tuesday results. But a quick word about a story you should go read. Glenn Peterson wrote a terrific piece for Vice about Nicole Gilliland, a former nursing student in Coos County, Oregon, who's suing Southwest Oregon Community College for discrimination under Title IX, a federal law that bars sex-based discrimination in schools that receive government funding. Gilliland, Peterson writes, had one year left in her nurse training program when the school and the conservative community it's located in found out that she had been a porn performer a decade earlier. Unclassy women shouldn't be nurses, Gilliland was told by one of her professors. Now Gilliland suing says, be careful who you treat like shit. In her lawsuit, and I'm wishing her every success, she argues that discrimination and harassment targeting porn performers and other sex workers is sex discrimination because most porn performers and sex workers, current and former, are women. The lawsuit breaks new ground in the fight for the rights of sex workers, and Gilliland, who's the mother of two small children, has paid a steep price for being who she is, living where she does, and bringing this lawsuit. Please go read Glenn Peterson's story about Nicole Gilliland, which is titled, Be Careful Who You Treat Like Shit, A Former Porn Star Sues Her School at Vice.com. And I'm going to end this very short intro by saying, there is a special circle in hell reserved for people who think porn is terrible and no one should appear in it, who also make it impossible for people who've done porn to move on and do anything else with their lives. Okay, coming up on today's show, on the micro, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. More of your cues, more of my A's, no ads, and I speak with evolutionary reproductive biologist Caitlin McDonough for a What You Got segment about her research into the evolution of same-sex behavior, a.k.a. hot, sweaty, gay, sex, and animals of all sorts. Spoiler alert, we've been getting it wrong for a very long time. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I am a 26-year-old female, and I am currently in a relationship with a man who is my age. He disclosed to me that he was molested as a child, and he started to think that was the reason for his kinks. He told me this about a year ago, and since that year has passed, um, our sex life has declined to become pretty much non-existent. Um, We talk about it a lot, and he tells me how every time he starts to be intimate with me, how he thinks of himself having that conversation with me and disclosing these traumatic events that he's never told anyone before and probably forgot about for, you know, over a decade. So now he has chosen to leave our apartment and figure figure out his trauma and to figure out if we can be together, given the fact that we have so many intimacy issues. It is worth noting, though, that we have no other relationship problems. I think that he's the most respectful, genuine, kind-hearted person. And we generally have such a great way of communicating, which is something that is very important to me and is something that's very hard to find in a lot of partnerships. So I'm kind of here in limbo He is currently 
starting therapy. And we're hoping that this will be able to mend our intimacy issues. But I was just wondering if you have any insight of these kind of intimacy issues and what the battle might be like long term. I'm willing to, you know, stand by him through this. I wish that he would move back into our apartment so that I can be there for him. But at the same time, I guess I do understand if he needs some time alone. So you say you have no other intimacy issues, no other real conflicts besides your sex life has collapsed and your boyfriend has moved out, which you didn't want him to do. Those sound like pretty significant issues to me, right up there with the trauma that your boyfriend has revealed to you about his past, about the way he was victimized, sexually abused in the past. And I'm a little uncomfortable. Not That's the wrong word. It's not that I'm uncomfortable. It's just that people do have this tendency when it comes to kink because of kink shame and sex negativity to want to tie their kinks to traumatic early experiences, uh, to, to sexual abuse. And a lot of us, a lot of people out there have suffered sexual abuse. Uh, and a lot of people have kinks. And what we know about kinks is that they tend to be pretty randomly assigned. The other thing we know about kinks, something I've frequently observed about kinks, is that they do seem to be a way that we process our fears. And I think the cuckolding kink is a really apt example of how a kink can help someone, or not help someone, how a kink can be one way someone's erotic imagination processes a fear. And it's the the, the fear of, of being cheated on. It's really jealousy inverted and jealousy uh, not weaponized against someone, but put into harness for someone to arouse them as opposed to threaten them. And I would be interested to know as now your boyfriend has tied his cuckolding kink to the trauma that he suffered, how he thinks these two things are linked because I would want to press him on that. And I hope that if he has a decent sex positive therapist, his therapist will press him on this point, how or whether these things are related because we pathologize our kinks. Sometimes, again, we want to tie them to traumas to make us feel even worse than the culture already attempts to make us feel about our kinks. And he may see causation where there is not even correlation, where there's nothing, where there is no link except some shame. He may feel some shame or guilt that he should not feel about the way he was victimized and he may also feel shame and guilt about his kinks and then he may think that there's a link there and hopefully a good therapist can help him. If indeed it's the case that there is no link, unlink those two things. I, I can't tell you how long this will take. I can't tell you what to do other than what you've already done, which is to tell your boyfriend that you would still like to be with him and that you want to be there for him as he works through these things. But it is a bad sign for the future of your relationship that he has – moved out, that this could be the beginning of the end. And it might be helpful for you to discuss with him perhaps suspending the relationship as people are currently suspending their presidential campaigns, for you to, to be on hold, for you to free him to work on this for himself, not to work on this for you, not to work on this to save your relationship, but to work on his history, his trauma, to unpack his sexual abuse with a qualified therapist for his own reasons, for his own purposes, for his own mental health and sexual health and well-being. So the goal is him and the goal is repairing himself. The goal is not repairing himself so that he can be for you who he has been for you. 
And that's scary to let somebody go when somebody has significant mental health work to do that they feel they need to do on their own. But it can often be the most loving choice and maybe in this instance, the right thing to do. Hey, Dan, and the tech, oh man, I'm drunk. Hey, Dan, so I have a question for you. My partner and I inadvertently gave our dog some cum and has persisted to the point where this dog just like washes as fuck and then comes in for the, you know, the few seconds. So I'm curious what y'all think the ethics of this is. It's not our intention to feed our dog cum, but it's happening. I'd love your opinion on this matter. It may not be your intention to feed your dog cum. There may be no erotic component to you feeding your dog cum, which would then, I guess, kick this up into the bestiality column. But you are feeding your dog cum. You are knowingly allowing your dog to sit in the room with you while you're fucking and watch and wait until the cum shot and then letting him jump in or her jump in and lap that shit up. And I'm sorry – I guess that's just gross. Otherwise, I mean, the cum would just get wiped up. Otherwise, you'd use a cum towel or a dirty T-shirt and take care of it the old-fashioned, non-dog-involved way. And I would be more comfortable with that. But I'm not in the room. I'm not you. I'm not your dog. And so it's really none of my business. But you kind of made it my business when you called to ask me a question about it. And you can tell from the tone of my voice that I'm really – I think that you need to have boundaries with your pets. And I am a dog owner or dog owner adjacent. I live with two dogs who are owned by other people I live with. And I think it's important to have boundaries with your pets. And lapping up cum is a boundary that I think you might want to set with your dog. You know, you say you have a boyfriend now. This is happening to your boyfriend now. What if you break up with your boyfriend and you get a new boyfriend? Having to roll out the cum-eating dog with a new boyfriend might cost you that new boyfriend, might cost you a whole series of potential new boyfriends because just because your current guy is squicked out but semi-comfortable with this as you are squicked out but semi-comfortable with this, I promise you, particularly if it was a guy like me, the next guy who's your boyfriend is not going to be comfortable with the cum-eating dog. A new guy coming in is likely to interpret that as – the first salvo in incorporating the dog into your sex life potentially, into your sex life with them, or that being your intent, and may run screaming. I know I would. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old cis straight man who's dating a 51-year-old woman. We get along fantastically. Our hobbies and interests correlate. My family likes her. I think she's beautiful. We both share the same kinks, and the sex is incredible. Here's the issue. She panics that she's robbing me of opportunities by dating me. She cites a handful of podcasts and TED Talks of examples of cougars breaking up with her cub and him going off to have kids, or a story about a man who got mad at the woman that he dated for wasting his life. But I've always been more attracted to older women. She never holds me back when we're out doing something, and I have no desire to have kids. I've gone to a handful of social events like munches in my friendly neighborhood dungeon and have met a ton of people who have no regrets at all about their age gap relationship decisions 
or the doors that have potentially closed. And all of them seem to be great people enjoying their lives. I was just curious about your take on age gaps and if you think it's unfair for older partners to date significantly younger partners. If your girlfriend can't take yes for an answer, nothing I say here is going to convince her to take yes for an answer. All you can do, though, is keep throwing those yeses at her. Yes, you want to be with her. Yes, you are content not having children or no, you don't ever want to have children. And so that's not a sacrifice for you. Yes, you've always been attracted to older women. She is an older woman. She is what you want. She is who you want to be with. And you can point out all the examples out there of people in relationships with significant age gaps who are together for years and happy. If she hasn't attended those munches with you and met some of these couples, ask her to go. But if she won't go, you know what else you can say to her? Think about all the people that you know who are in relationships with no age gap. People were in relationships where they're born on the exact same day or people in relationships who were roughly the same age and those relationships ended. There are no guarantees. You can't game affection like this. You can't say I have to be with somebody who is my own age or the relationship will fail because look around. Think of all the people you know. Tell her to think of all the people she knows. We're in relationships or were in relationships past tense with people who were of the appropriate age, within an appropriate age range, and those relationships didn't work out. Maybe she needs more examples in her life of age gap relationships where the woman is older. Perhaps you should familiarize her with the president of France who has been with a much older woman for decades and they appear to be very happy and they are sort of high-profile role models available to you and your girlfriend. The thing I wouldn't encourage you to say to her though is – I will never break up with you because there may come a time when you want for legitimate reasons or need for legitimate reasons to end this relationship. That's not the kind of assurance that I think it's healthy for people to give each other. We will never break up. Breaking up is always possible. You have to earn your partner's affections. You should never take your partner for granted. And a big part of not taking each other for granted is the awareness, is maintaining the awareness that both of you, either of you, is free to end the relationship at any time. I don't think you wield that as a cudgel. I don't think you threaten each other with that to manipulate or control each other. But I do think that's something that you have to have in the back of your mind so that you're always valuing your partner, valuing their presence in your life and going that extra mile, making that effort to earn them, to keep them in your life, to keep them present in your life. So rather than say to your partner, I would never leave you, you say to your partner, I always – want to earn you and I always want you to earn me and I hope that we're together forever. I hope that this is right. I hope that we're the right people for each other for as long as possible. And then we'll see what happens over time. But right now, when I picture myself five, ten years in the future, I am still with you and I hope that you feel the same way. All that said, you know, if your girlfriend wants to end this relationship because she's uncomfortable with the age gap – She can end this relationship because she's uncomfortable with the age gap. You can't force her by pointing to the president of France or the people at your munches to stay with you despite her discomfort or her fears or insecurities about the age gap. You can only address those insecurities. You can only reason with her about those insecurities if those are really the reason she wants to end the relationship. It's possible she might point to the age gap as the reason she's ending the relationship and it's something else and the age gap is just – this thing, this MacGuffin that neither of you can control that gets you both off the hook or gets her off the hook 
and becomes the little white lie that allows her to end the relationship without walking you through the real reasons. But president of France, the people at your munches, all the people that you know, all the people that she knows that were in age-concordant or age-appropriate relationships. I hate that expression, age-appropriate. It makes people in age – Gap relationships sound like they're doing something or someone inappropriate when they're not. But all those people who were closer together in age that she knows and knows personally whose relationships failed, yeah, those have to be put on the scales along with the people she knows in relationships with significant age gaps that failed as well. Hey, Dan, early 30s, cis female calling from Michigan. About a year ago, I met a recently divorced coworker. We headed off right away. But we we were both reluctant to date someone we work with, so tried to keep feelings at bay for a while. Ultimately, we started dating, and things were really intense and great. But by the time we got together, he had been casually dating someone else for about two months. Because that relationship was further along, she asked him to be exclusive before he and I got to that point, and he had said yes. Feelings between the two of us were still really strong, and whenever we see each other at work functions, there's still a lot of chemistry. A few times last year, we'd start talking and hanging out at work a lot, but just when it seemed like he was going to break things off with his girlfriend to date me, he'd get kind of skittish and not follow through. Three months ago, we stopped talking altogether, and I've done my best to move on, dating other people, um, but nothing serious. Last week, he reached out to me saying that his feelings for me have never gone away and he's more scared of regretting not trying than he's scared of of dating me and he wants to see where things could go between us. Most of my friends think I should tell him to go screw himself because he's had multiple chances and stayed with this other girl instead of me in the past. Um, I don't want to fall into the same scenario again, but I also know that we connect in a way I haven't felt before, and that feels really good. Um, How many chances are too many? Well, that was really an action-packed year. All of that happened. All of that transpired in the course of one calendar. You, You met this guy at work, recently divorced. You hit it off. You decided you couldn't date because you were coworkers. And you pushed it back and didn't date and then you started dating even though you're coworkers. But it turned out he was dating somebody else for a couple months and she has to be exclusive and he agreed so he couldn't keep seeing you anymore. And then you saw each other at work functions and then you stopped speaking to each other for months and now he's reached out to you. Last week reached out to you to say he still has feelings for you and can't deny them anymore and wants to date you, dot, dot, dot. But he doesn't say whether or not or, or you don't mention whether or not he's still with – This woman who asked him to be exclusive, I have no idea what's on the table here, what he's proposed. Is he proposing seeing you on the side? Is he proposing cheating on this woman he's been exclusive with for less than a year with you? In that case, I agree with your friends. You should tell this guy to go fuck himself. You know, you don't want to be the piece on the side. You were interested in him as a primary partner for yourself, maybe less interested in him now that you know him to be the kind of guy, if this is indeed what's happened, who will agree to be exclusive with one woman some months ago and then reach out to a woman he was also dating at the same time and ask her to be his piece on the side. But if you omitted a crucial detail here and he broke up with that woman or is ending that relationship or is contemplating ending that relationship, if you'll agree to see him, if he needs that 
motivation, if he needs that prompt to end the relationship. And some people do. Some people need that cherry or that carrot to get out of a relationship and then okay. Then I disagree with your friends. Then it wouldn't be irrational to see this guy. Early on, you did what so many people tell themselves or tell each other, tell their friends they should do. You didn't date this guy because you were colleagues, because you were coworkers and you don't want to shit where you eat or shit where you get paid. And so you missed that opportunity. You missed the opportunity to be his girlfriend out of the gate and then there was a competing girlfriend and he had developed feelings for her and it's possible for a person to have feelings for more than one person at a time and the question was called by that other woman and he had to choose and because he'd invested more with her, he chose her at that moment and now he's either regretting or rethinking that choice. And again, if he wants you to be the piece on the side, I am with your friends, tell him to go fuck himself. What he's proposing is he's going to cheat on his girlfriend with you, the person who wanted to be and could have been his girlfriend. Yeah, no. Tell him to go fuck himself. But if he is leaving this relationship or has left this relationship, maybe. Yeah. If I were you, if I were in your shoes, instead of telling him to go fuck himself, I would tell him to come fuck me just as soon as he'd ended things with her. Hi, Dan. I started dating my current boyfriend, who's four years older than me, when I was just 16 and a virgin. It's been four years and our relationship is going great. Now, here's an intro to my issue. A week and a half ago, someone got transferred into my work and I am insanely attracted to this guy. He was transferred out less than a week later, but I still have not been able to stop thinking about him. I'm sure I could find him really easily if I really tried, but I wouldn't have done anything that my boyfriend wouldn't have approved of, but Lord, did I want to. (laughs) I don't tend to find many people uh, sexually attractive, so when I do, it really affects me. Since when I was so young, when I met my boyfriend, uh, and he is so aggressively monogamous, I kind of feel like I'm missing out. I'm still pretty young, and I just wish I had a little more freedom to engage with the few people that I am attracted to and have any sort of opportunity with. I've briefly talked to my boyfriend about this, and he says he can't understand any desire for variety, but since I was only 16 when we got together and he was my first relationship, he can understand how I feel like I'm missing out. However, he's still very against the thought of doing anything outside of the relationship, and the thought of a three-way or poly relationship isn't appealing to either of us. He totally trusts me, so I won't do anything to break that trust, but I'm not totally sure if he would ever be comfortable enough with me having any sort of sexual or flirtatious interactions outside of our relationship. Monogamy, non-monogamy kind of a binary choice. Now, non-monogamy as opposed to monogamy takes many forms. We all know what we mean or what people are doing when they say that they're monogamous. Here are two people who only have sex with each other. When two people say that they are non-monogamous, that is the beginning of a larger conversation if we are privileged enough to have that information or be entitled to that information or close enough or intimate enough with that person to have that conversation with them about the non-monogamy in their life and the form it takes because that can be a don't ask, don't tell agreement. That can be we only play together with others. That can be I'm free to pursue other people and they're free to pursue other people. That can be we date other people together or separately. Non-monogamy is really 
a whole basket of what some people would regard as deplorable possibilities but I don't regard as deplorable at all. Works for a lot of people. It doesn't sound like non-monogamy works for your boyfriend. And non-monogamy, some small slice of it, some small piece of it is what you're asking of him. If you want the freedom to occasionally be with other people or pursue other people or flirt with other people, if you want to be monogamish, perhaps not having sex with other people but just flirtatiousness, just being able to engage with somebody else erotically in a limited way, no intercourse, no oral sex but maybe some making out at a party or something, he's going to have to give a little on the monogamy to get to monogamish or to get to non-monogamous. So there's a price of admission that either he's going to have to pay or you're going to have to pay. To keep you, if you issue the ultimatum, he may have to allow for this. You were 16 years old when you got together with this guy. You're only 20 years old now. You have six or seven more decades left on this planet. Can you think about those six or seven more decades? Can you project yourself into your 80-year-old life on a roasting planet and be content knowing that he was the only person you ever with? that you never got to be with another man, that he was it, that you were monogamous with this guy all your life, that you met when you were a teenager. Can you be happy when you project yourself into that moment? Do you think you're content looking back over the course of your life and only ever having been with this one guy? If yes, even if it's a bit of a sacrifice, even if it's a bit of struggle, maybe it's the price of admission that you pay to be with him. That you never act on an attraction to another person and those attractions you say are rare. So maybe it wouldn't be that huge a sacrifice for you not to act on those rare attractions to others where there is a mutual feeling of attraction and therefore an opportunity. And you can make that sacrifice. You could pay that price of admission. Or if you project yourself into that future and you anticipate being miserable or resentful – looking back over the last six or seven decades and only ever having slept with this guy that you met when you were 16 years old and the resentment would be the kind of poisonous resentment that would have curdled and turned your relationship into a high-conflict nightmare, well, then maybe you issue the ultimatum that I need this freedom. I need the freedom to occasionally pursue others to be happy and to be happy and stay with you. I need that freedom. And if I can't have that freedom and be happy and be with you, then I'm going to have to – End this relationship so that I can have that freedom if you can't give it to me. So yeah, I'm sorry to say someone's going to have to pay the price of admission. What I often say in these cases where someone is 20 and thinking about the relationship they've been in since high school is to look around at the people that you know in your life who are in stable, healthy, happy, loving relationships, who are partnered for the long term and the long haul. And very few of them are with people that they were dating in high school. And I think that's a sign for many young people in your shoes, for people who are still dating the person that they began dating in high school, lost their virginities to, about the choice that would ultimately be in the long-term best interest of you both. Hey, Dan, I'm calling because I'm invited to this wedding that the bride and the groom are being kind of annoying and weird about. It's like a costume wedding and all guests must wear a costume, which is cool and fun, I guess. But they're making the guests say what costumes they'll be wearing in advance so that they can approve it or not. And it also has to be one that they recognize. 
first of all, the wedding is like nine months away. So I have no idea what I'd be wearing and probably won't know until like the day or two before like any other wedding or event I go to. But they're already asking people about it. I told them I had, I told them the only costume that I had was a hot dog costume. And they told me it wouldn't work because they want movie characters. I'm also not that upset about that because I wasn't really into wearing a hot dog costume in public. <laughs> but I also don't want to like buy a costume to wear for one day and never wear it again. I'm also not a movie person, so I don't really know very many movie characters, especially ones that they must recognize. Um, I feel I, I do feel bad not going because not many people are invited, and it's nice they chose me. But I don't really want to spend the next nine months of my life dedicating myself to coming up with a character and getting it approved. Oh, and also, one of the people attending the wedding is this nasty girl who spanked me at work when I was 16. So I don't really want to be around the same vicinity as her. Also, I'm just not into people controlling me about what I can and can't wear. I just want to wear what I want to wear. And if you tell me I can't wear something, I'm not really that excited about going. So I don't really know what I should do or say about them. First and most importantly, you do not have to go to this wedding. This couple is being ridiculous. Also, there's the small matter of this person who kind of sexually assaulted you at work, this mean girl who spanked you when you were a teenager, who you don't want to even be around, who's also going to this small and intimate wedding. You say not many people are invited to this wedding. So avoiding this person that you don't want to interact with at a small and intimate wedding where everyone's dressed up in movie character costumes is going to be very difficult. And what your friends who are getting married here are doing is assholery. It's as if they're having a destination wedding but not telling anyone where the destination of the fucking wedding is, where it's taking place. We're having a destination wedding. You're invited but you have to guess the destination. Hawaii? No. Wrong. Castle in Spain? No. Wrong. We're having a wedding. Everyone has to wear a ridiculous and humiliating costume and then the guests have to tell the couple what the costume is and the couple's allowed to veto their costume suggestions? Yeah, no, wrong. Wrong guess. Wrong costume. No. No. Fuck this. Don't go to this goddamned wedding. The more bars people erect, the more hoops people put up and demand that others jump through in order to get to their wedding, the fewer people that couple should have at their wedding or maybe even really wants at their wedding. When you make getting to your wedding a challenge and an obstacle course, fewer people are going to show up at your wedding. And maybe that's what the couple wants or maybe they just want to feel aggrieved when nobody shows up at their wedding. No, you don't have to go to this wedding that this couple is making ridiculous demands on their guests about attending. Yeah, fuck this. You can't turn the entire guest list into your wedding party. People who sign up to be groomsmen and bridesmaids, yeah, you're kind of signing up to be ordered around about what you wear and how your hair is done and your makeup. But just a guest at the wedding? Honor a, a simple dress code, you know, cocktail attire or formal wear. But beyond that, you don't get to tell people what they're wearing at your wedding. And anybody who attempts to tell people what they have to wear at their wedding deserves to have no one show up at their fucking idiotic wedding. Don't go. That's my advice. Don't go to this wedding. Do not indulge this couple. Send your regrets and go to the Dan Savage Broken Toaster store and get a broken toaster to send to the asshole couple. 
Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old from uh, the Northwest, and I have a quick question for you. I have never bottomed before because I can't bottom. Basically, I'm either extremely tight or I have other health issues that make it pretty much impossible for me to bottom. So I've always been a top in relationships and sexual activity. But I want to know, are there other ways to stimulate the prostate without having to be inside you? Because I've always been very curious about feeling kind of more sub or having that experience that bottoms are able to have when it's good. Um, and I'm, just, I'm unable to do that. So I just want to get your thoughts. Is there any way to trigger that spot that doesn't involve uh, penetration? You say you're very tight and that's prevented you from bottoming. Are you so tight and are your health issues so complicated that you can't get a finger in your ass, that you can't get a small butt plug in your ass? There are things short of bottoming, getting a big dude's giant dick in your ass and letting him slam it around until he comes. Yeah, that can be a high bar to clear if you are very tight, if anal penetration isn't your thing, if you've had health issues, if you've had hemorrhoids or other complications that make anal penetration scary, like – going from zero to bottoming for some dude, that's, again, high bar to clear, kind of scary. But going from never having been penetrated to having a, a thin vibrating butt plug in your ass after using a lot of lube and maybe doing this during solo sex when you're alone, so you're doing this just for you, just to explore your own pleasure, maybe that's a possibility. But even if you can't ever put anything in your ass, not a finger, not a vibrating egg, nothing you can trigger that spot without anal penetration. What you want to get is a very powerful vibrating dildo, sort of a vibrating stick, and lay it across your asshole and across your taint and grind down on it. Really press down on it and sit on it to send vibrations deep into your rectum. And those vibrations, if they're powerful enough, you really want to get a kind of Hitachi magic wand level dildo sized wand vibrator that will send those vibrations deep into you and they will hit your prostate. It will also hit all the nerve endings on the outside of your asshole. It will hit your, your dick a little bit from the back and it will be hot. It, it, it's an enjoyable and pleasurable ride. And it's one you can and should experience and experiment with on your own during solo sex. You don't feel like the guy wants to upgrade to penetration. You don't feel any pressure. You don't feel like you're falling short of someone's expectations if you're being subby in the moment and you're letting them play with your hole uh, that they might want to upgrade or, or renegotiate your no penetration, just outer course and external stimulation of your butt. You know, sometimes a guy might during sex want to Ask again if maybe you would rethink the penetration because he'd like to penetrate you and you may feel pressured then to agree. So I would encourage you to go get that powerful vibrator and the first few dozen times that you use it, do it alone and then be very clear if you want to do it with a partner about your limitations. Nothing can go in your ass ever but you are able to enjoy anal stimulation, some anal pleasure and you're able to hit your prostate with deep vibrations in this way and you can submit to him and let him do it to you in this way with the clear understanding because you were emphatic about it, that it only goes on, on and across your asshole and taint, not in and up your butt. Hey, Dan, single white, this man calling from Denver, Colorado. I'm gay and I've been out for about seven years. Originally, I sickly was a top over time. I've become more versed 
and more recently, I've owned Nevada with a desire to kind of truly be more versed and talk more again. So I just went over to a hookup's house and we had a brain screen stop and I just could not get it up, even though I typically have no problem with that for myself, obviously, <laughs> but I'm just really in my head about it all. And I think to myself, am I strictly just a bottom or am I just really in my head about this? I want to truly be versed. So this is a big problem and it frustrates me, which is also a problem. Bottoms aren't tops who can't get hard. Bottoms are guys who really enjoy being penetrated, really enjoy getting their asses fucked, prefer getting their asses fucked. And a strict bottom, someone who's strictly a bottom, has no interest in fuck a strictly gay bottom, has no interest in fucking some other guy's ass. They just want to get fucked. You want to fuck ass just one time, one time in your entire life. You say you're in your mid-30s. One time in your entire life when you intended to top, you couldn't get hard. You are attaching way too much meaning and importance and consequence to that one time you couldn't get hard. That doesn't mean you are eternally disqualified from topping ever again. It doesn't mean you are incapable of getting hard to top in the future. You will talk yourself into, however, a performance anxiety issue, into performance anxiety-induced erectile dysfunction if you continue to psych yourself up in this way. You just have to shrug it off. You just have to tell yourself it happens. It happens to all guys every once in a while, particularly as you get older. It happens maybe a little more frequently than it did in the past. And it doesn't have to mean anything about your identity, about the roles you enjoy playing. Wonderful that you're more versed now than you used to be, that you like getting fucked in the ass. But that doesn't mean you can't still fuck ass. But if you tell yourself, if you manage to convince yourself that you flipped some or tripped some imaginary trigger in your ass that took you from exclusively top to exclusively bottom, you're going to have this problem. So stop thinking about it. Stop worrying about it. Find some guy that you want to top and top him and put this quite literally, this concern, this issue, put it quite literally behind you by getting behind him. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls because every once in a while we like to invite researchers or scientists onto the show to share with us the results of a new scientific study that they've published for a little segment we call What You Got. Joining me for this What You Got, Caitlin McDonough, a PhD candidate in the Center for Reproductive Evolution at Syracuse University. Hey, Caitlin, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Um, I could call you Dr. McDonough in advance of you getting your PhD. I'm confident you'll get it. Uh, So what do you got for us? So we've got this paper in which what we've done is really just thought about things. We haven't done any experiments. We haven't gone out and observed any animals. We've really just looked at all of the existing research on same-sex sexual behavior in animals and thought about what if there's a different explanation? So most of the research on same-sex sexual behavior thinks that it has to have a reason, that it shouldn't exist, and therefore we have to figure out why it could possibly exist in order to, to be present. Okay, so I've, I've, been, I've been gaying out for a very long time, and this has been a roaring debate often fueled by the religious right. They used to argue that same-sex behavior, that gay sex was so disgusting, not even animals did it. 
And then when they were presented with this mountain of evidence that indeed there is you know, evidence of homosexual behavior, even a homosexual orientation in many animal, animal species, they said, well, it's so disgusting animals do it. Why would humans want to do that? Sharks eat their kids. Are we going to do that too? Uh, and you know, part of the argument that sort of kicks around about this is um, it's not – evolutionarily speaking, an advantage to be gay. You're not going to pass your genes right, on. So why right. hasn't this been sort of selected out of every population? Why is it still manifesting? Exactly. And that's exactly what was running in our head as we thought about all of the science that was done. And we wondered if many of these theories that scientists have been operating on and this like desperate search for adaptive explanations are maybe more influenced by our cultural biases by these like history of, of European and Western colonial perceptions that homosexuality is bad and needs to be explained. But it's a deviation that, that, that heterosexuality is, right, is the base right. norm for everyone or for all animal species. And homosexuality is some a- evidence of something going haywire. Exactly. And so what we've done in this paper is propose an alternative. And the alternative is that same-sex sexual behaviors, and we're very careful. We don't want to say that what we're observing in animals is the same as humans because heterosexuality and homosexuality are sexual orientations that have a lot of different meanings and complicated meanings to them. So we're just talking about seeing these behaviors in animals, but that maybe these behaviors were present in the earliest origins of sexual behavior. And that if we, we think about it that way, that then it makes sense that these behaviors have actually been maintained in populations because they're actually really not that costly. They're not that deviant. They're fairly normal and and their variation makes sense. And so they've then been maintained throughout most animal species. And that is a better explanation for why they exist in so many today. Okay. You've kind of lost me. I'm a little confused. So you're saying that that, that same-sex behavior uh, exists in all Mm -hmm. species because it always has, not that it was there were little straight animals and eventually there was some sort of genetic mutation and then there were little like gay ones or bi ones that everyone exactly. was always everything or everything was always everything or into everything? Yeah. So what we're thinking about is that when animals first develop sexual behaviors and we don't know much, if anything, about when or who, in, in what that happened. So we're kind of just doing a thought experiment here. But in these earliest animals that started developing sexual behaviors, it makes sense that they maybe couldn't distinguish males from females. And so in that animal, all individuals are just kind of initiating sexual behaviors to one another. And one of the assumptions is that animals will then very quickly only direct their behaviors towards a different sex. And we're questioning that. We're saying, well, why? Like maybe it's actually more beneficial to keep having an open strategy in which you can direct your behaviors towards many different individuals. Maybe it's not actually that costly to direct your behaviors towards the same sex. And so in that way, a whole variety of sexual behaviors directed towards a variety of individuals is present in the earliest origins of sexual behaviors. And then as animals evolve and species differentiate, that variation is there and it can be selected on to be less that there may be species that have less same sex sexual behaviors. It could also be acted on to be, to be greater. They're like in primates where there are a lot of same sex sexual behaviors, but that this variation in sexual behavior is kind of 
a key part of the evolution of sexual behaviors. And it's something that is fairly normal and maintained. So it's in there, in the code, in the motherboard, right from the start. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. So is the argument then that everyone and everything is bi, that there aren't animals like, oh, I don't know, your podcast host this morning, who are who have homosexual orientations? Absolutely not. Um, so we're saying that there's going to be variation and that in certain species, there might be selection for more or less. In certain individuals, there might be selection for more or less. And that um, in thinking about humans, there's a completely different context in which, so right. So when we talk about animals, we're really just thinking about these isolated incidents of sexual behaviors. How likely is an animal to mate with another animal when it sees it, um, regardless of its sex? And in humans, it's just so much more complicated. There's attraction, there's personal identity. There's culture, there's, there's religion, um, there's stigma, yeah, there's taboo. exactly. And so we're, so really we're not making that, we think, um, that the people who are really better at, at thinking and, and talking about human sexual behavior behaviors are our fellow queer scholars, feminist scholars, sociologists, and, and the activists and people themselves. Mm-hmm. So same-sex behavior, SSB, has been observed in how many species? Over 1,600, and we think that that's probably an underestimate. We think that it's probably going to be present in most species where it's really looked for. But what's happened is that when people do research with their own biases and they don't think that same-sex sexual behavior is normal or natural or they don't see it and they don't write about it and they don't report it. And so we think that often what's happened is that we just don't know because people haven't been talking about it. And so that's really kind of what we need to start doing next is looking. Okay, so just so I make sure that I understand the, the, the thrust of, of yeah. your newly published uh, work, uh, and there's no original research here, it's just a thought experiment, it's observation, and it's looking at other studies, is that the assumption... Right, which is a type of original research. Right, right. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The, the biased assumption that, that people have made, other researchers have made over the decades when they look at uh, homosexuality in, in animals, in man and other animals, is that there was a time when everything kind of sex was straight, that their sexual reproduction came along, all the sex was straight, all the sex was straight. Eventually, there was some sort of disturbance in the force, some sort of mutation where homosexuality manifested itself. And it is uh, an aberration. It is a evolutionary dead end. And we have to find an explanation for how that happened, that it is natural, but it's not, I don't, optimal is too prejudicial a word. It's not original to sexual reproduction. Is that the argument? And, and that it's that bias that prevented people from recognizing that potentially same-sex behavior was as common and as normal and has always been as present as opposite-sex behavior in animals. Exactly. Yeah. So we, just again, we don't use the words homosexual and heterosexual to refer to animals, but other than that, that's the, the nail on the head. What about those gay penguins yeah. who are stealing eggs? Can we call them homosexual or gay? We, we choose, we, um, our preference in our, our perspective in this paper, in this paper <laughs> and in our work is to not use the terms that are, are referring to humans to refer to animals because of all of the, the complicated, messy connotations that go on with those words may kind of cloud us from really being able to think about these ideas in a, in a way that, that doesn't have biases in either direction. So where can people who are interested in reading this study for themselves uh, find it online? Yeah, so this paper is published in the journal Nature, Ecology, and Evolution.
and it is called An Alternative Hypothesis for the Evolution of Same-Sex Sexual Behavior in Animals. Yep. Quite a mouthful. Caitlin McDonough and, and a terrific paper. Caitlin McDonough and, and terrific new and original research. Caitlin McDonough, PhD candidate in the Center for Reproductive Evolution at Syracuse University. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. It's thrilling to be here. Hi, Dan. This is a straight female calling from the East Coast. I'm calling because my boyfriend of one year, I just found out, was seeing other men behind my back. I had found a bracelet in his room that didn't belong to me. So after a while, he he said he didn't know where it was. So I snooped through his Facebook and found that he was talking to a drag queen and had plans to meet up. It was clearly sexual. I confronted him about it. He apologized. He insists that he's straight. I had told him in the past, I had suspicions about him maybe being uh, bi or gay or so. And he insisted that he's not. And he said, if you, maybe if you want an open relationship, you never wanted to. And he tells me now he didn't want an open relationship because I um, would be afraid he's going to lose me anyway. I'm hurt over the dishonesty more than anything. You know, you don't want me to see anybody else. I wasn't. And you're cheating on me. I, I don't know what to do. He offered to take me down to the places that he hangs out with, introduce me to the man and be very open about that side of his life. I don't know if I should do that or just, you know, dump him because he was dishonest. You should break up with this guy. Not because he's bi. Obviously, you would be fine dating a bi guy from the sounds of things. But trust your gut. You should break up with him because he's a dishonest and a liar. And it sounds like he might be kind of a mess. You say you found a bracelet. You say that the person that he's been hooking up with, you use the words drag queen to describe that person. I would be curious to know whether this person is a drag queen, is a gay guy who does drag or whether this person is trans, it's possible that your boyfriend identifies as straight and is attracted to women, to cis women and trans women. And therefore, it's not a lie for him to say that he's straight. But if he's getting with guys, if he's getting with guys, even guys who do drag, then he is bisexual and asking you to really go along with the lie that he wants to tell himself that he isn't actually bi as he sleeps with men, even men who do drag. How exhausting would that be to have to back him up all the time in that delusion? But that's beside the point. He's disqualified himself from being in a relationship with you through these antics, through cheating on you, through running around behind your back, sleeping with other people. When he denied wanting an open relationship when indeed he had unilaterally already opened the relationship that you were in because he didn't want to lose you while he was pursuing others himself, you don't want to be with somebody who's that dishonest, that manipulative, that selfish. Those are all disqualifying traits, not bisexual, not the kind of straight guy who's attracted to all women, cis women, trans women. That's not disqualifying and obviously you are – broad-minded enough to consider dating a bi guy. You're not biphobic, but you are asshole-phobic and you are liar-phobic and you should be asshole-liar-phobic and you should be jerked-around-phobic also. This guy's been jerking you the fuck around and he wouldn't have come out to you. He wouldn't have come clean with you, wouldn't have told you the truth if you hadn't have found the bracelet, if you hadn't have hacked his Facebook or whatever and found the evidence that retroactively justified the snooping that you did. That's sometimes the thing that happens. Everyone says snooping is wrong, but sometimes when you snoop, you find information that you really did have a right to know and that your partner is sleeping with other people 
when they've made a monogamous commitment to you and perhaps you're not using condoms with them, that is information that you are entitled to. And if you find that information snooping, well, then retroactively that snooping has my blessing. You also have my blessing when it comes to dumping the motherfucker. Dump this motherfucker already. DTMFA. Dan Savage. Hello. 25-year-old queer gal living in New York. So I have been using a newer text-based dating app geared towards folks of all identities other than cis dudes. Uh, It's actually a really cool app and I would recommend it to queer ladies, gender non-conforming folks, trans folks who are seeking dating, sex, or just community. For instance, I posted the other day about wanting to trade sourdough starter for a kombucha scoby and got plenty of responses. So yes, pretty versatile. The reason I'm calling in though is because the other day I came across an ad on Lex, uh, somebody wanting to set up a BDSM orgy party for their birthday. This super duper intrigued me as I've had a number of threesomes in the past and have learned about myself that group sex is a huge turn on and super fun and something that I've been wanting to explore further. The thought of attending an orgy deeply excites me. That's not really the aspect I'm nervous about. It's more the BDSM. So I've never really engaged in BDSM before. I don't even know if it will be something that would turn me on in person. I have engaged in different aspects of power play, but pretty vanilla stuff in my opinion. I don't really think I've ever done anything BDSM-like. But I'm interested in exploring, and so that's kind of where my confusion lies right now. I want to see what it's all about, but this is a person's sacred birthday space with a group of people who are well-seasoned BDSM, uh, active in the BDSM community. And that makes me super-duper nervous, first and foremost, but also feel like maybe it would be rude to step up in their space and request them to show me the ropes. What's your advice for a BDSM noob, somebody who wants to explore sexuality further and try new experiences, but also is nervous slash wanting to be respectful of those I'm engaging with? 25-year-old queer gal living in New York? Hello. The person who put this out there on this dating app that they wanted to have a BDSM-themed or BDSM play party birthday party, ask them whether newbies like you would be welcome. Put in your message to them that you have some experience with power play but no experience with BDSM, that you have some experience with group sex, with threesomes, and you're intrigued. You want to explore group sex more. You also want to get into BDSM and ask this person whether you would be welcome at their party. If only newbies came, if there were 30 newbies coming to the party, that might not work for the person hosting the party. They wouldn't want a bunch of nervous wallflowers hanging around on the edges of the party, not sure what to do or where to step in. But there might be room at the party for one or two people who haven't done much BDSM but are curious and intrigued and want to explore. You'll meet a lot of people in organized BDSM spaces who, you know, and this isn't altruism, there's something in it for them, who are very welcoming to people who are inexperienced, people who are curious, people who want to get into BDSM, want to get into the BDSM community because it's the only way the community grows. It's the only way people get to play with new partners and perhaps find a life partner who shares their interest in kink is if new people enter these spaces. 
Now, there are kink organizations. You live in a big city. There are definitely kink organizations in your city that have things that are called munches, which are informal, non-play party events, usually a bunch of people sitting on folding chairs in a circle having coffee, usually at a time when people aren't partying, during the day, afternoon, early evening. And it's just a, a conversation about BDSM and a, an introduction to the people who are involved in this particular organization. And it's a way in where there are no pressures, no expectations. There's no expectation of play at this event. It's just a discussion. That might be the best way for you to get involved in the BDSM community, particularly if you want to do it in such a way where you're telegraphing your respect for other people's boundaries and perhaps your respect for the sacredness of a play party where people who are more experienced might want to interact with other people who are more experienced, who know what they're doing, who've been shown the ropes already. But at plenty of BDSM play parties, you will meet people who were invited by the hosts, who have little to no experience with BDSM, who are being shown the ropes at that play party. Ask the person who put this out on that dating app, put their birthday party out on the dating app, if you would be welcome. And if you would be welcome, take that yes for an answer and go. Hello, Dan Savage. I am a uh, cisgendered bisexual female um, in a relationship over almost two years or a year and a half with a cisgendered man. Um, I'm half black, half white. He's white. Um, so we have been through many fights and we usually come out stronger and really um, learn a lot from these fights. Uh, we get along amazing. Um, and he's really supported me through a lot of thick and thin times and I've become a better person because of it and vice versa. However, he does this thing where he has, he'll say, like, he'll mimic the way somebody Cantonese or Mandarin sounds, um, but it's gibberish because he knows that it makes me mad and I think it's offensive. He doesn't do it around any of his peers. He's in uh, school working in a field where he works with the public. Um, he has done advocacy with um, First Nations groups. You know, he's abroad, you know, saw people being racist to Muslims and went and checked to see if they were okay. But it's this thing that he still does just with me to make me mad, but he would never repeat it to anybody else. And he's admitted that. I flipped out on him about it. And he wants me to look at if this is coming from somewhere deeper in my relationship where I feel like it's quite simply, I've been asking you for over six months to stop doing this because I think it's offensive and stupid and you keep doing it. It's said that a lot of this stems from like his anxiety where he has said before that he doesn't know why he does it, but it's a way that he tries to connect with me. He has said that he's taken a lot of this on and has given him stuff to think about, um, but I still feel like he's having a hard time taking this seriously and making me feel like I'm the crazy black woman. So you get along amazingly well, and he's a wonderful guy who does work with First Nations, and he's intervened when he's seen Muslims being treated in a racist manner and he's just wonderful and you guys have a great relationship except for this clearly and objectively and obviously racist thing he does expressly to piss you off and that he can't seem to stop himself from doing this 
racist shit that he, you know, this gibberish that he speaks, the mocking the Chinese, Chinese people, this racist garbage, this shtick, this racist anti-Chinese shtick that he engages in to piss you off, to sort of bank shot bait you about race. Dump the motherfucker already. He needs to go work on this. He needs to get a handle on why he would bait his uh, half African-American girlfriend in this way, why he would attack people of another race and, and, and gaslight you really in this way. He is gaslighting you that he only does this in front of you is revealing and what it reveals is that he is an asshole with behavioral issues and these things tend to get worse over time if he gets away with it. If you look at how much you enjoy being with him and all the good that he brings to the table and turn a blind eye to this or put up with it or endure it and you get in deeper into this relationship, if you move in together, if you get married, if you scrambled your DNA together, the harder it becomes for you to walk away from this guy, the likelier someone who engages in this kind of baiting assholery, the likelier it is, he is, to dial that shit up, to provoke you more frequently or in worse ways because it's harder for you to walk away. And that he frames this as somehow him attempting to connect with you, that he's seeking negative attention or wanting to have these fights because he thinks these fights are – or he thinks this kind of conflict is necessary to the relationship or he mistakes it for love. Oh, my god. I don't know what's going on in his head, but he needs to see a shrink. He needs to see a therapist. He needs to work through this, and he needs to work through it alone. Hi, Dan. I'm a really longtime listener, early 40s, just female in the Pacific Northwest. And um, I've got a question about the person that I've been dating. I'm in an open marriage, and, and the person that I'm seeing is also in an open marriage, um, but they practice more of the DADT don't ask, don't tell model, which is not a model that I practice really, um, not the structure of relationship for my primary partner and I, although I do try to keep intrusion and there's definitely a division of keeping things separate, romantic partners pretty separate. But in this situation with this gentleman that I'm seeing who is really doing a don't ask, don't tell with his partner, I am struggling with that behind closed doors, there's a lot of physical intimacy and attention. And then in the real world, there just has to be this space and this looking over the shoulder and this constant worry about being recognized as being with another woman out in the world. And I guess I, I, I feel like I don't like it. Um, and I'm not sure if I should just let it go and and the connection and the physical sexual component of the time that I spend with him is really spectacular and awesome um but I know that I'm also pretty wired to want things to have kind of a fluidity not this oh in this space things can be hardcore like this and then I've got to turn a switch and pretend like I don't want to make physical contact with him or yeah, it feels like there's something missing. And I wonder if you think I should say, okay, this isn't working for me or not. Don't ask, don't tell. The DT in that, the DT and DADT, don't ask, don't tell, doesn't always just mean the primary partner doesn't want to hear about it, doesn't want to be told about it. It also frequently means don't tell anyone else. Don't tell them using your words and don't tell them 
using your action. There are a lot of people out there in open relationships who are very invested in being perceived to be monogamous. They're very invested in social monogamy. This man that you're dating and his wife, they're one of those couples where she doesn't want to hear about it. She doesn't want to be told, but she doesn't want anybody else to be told about it either. And the stakes can be high. You know, sometimes people worry about becoming estranged from their families if their families find out they're in an open relationship or the damage it could do them socially. And I'd like for that to change. I'd like for this not to be something that could damage people socially. But also professionally, there are no workplace protections, no anti-discrimination laws that cover open relationships or open marriages. And there's a lot of prejudice and a lot of stigma attached to any sort of openness. And she may worry and he may worry that if he's seen out in public – Obviously canoodling with you as you would like to canoodle with him in public or have that easy intimacy in public that you have with somebody that you're dating and you're having sex with that the assumption might be made that not that they're in an open relationship. That's usually not where people's minds go first, but the assumption might be made that he is cheating and that will get around and his wife will be perceived as pathetic or pitiable as sitting home alone, not knowing that her husband's running around with other women or women, but probably women plural. That is the assumption people will make if he's seen out there with you having a nice romantic dinner for two in a candlelit restaurant, his hand resting on your hand on top of the table. That is where people's minds will go. This is a condition of seeing this man that you have to respect the terms under which he is allowed to have sex with other people, allowed to be intimate and date other people. And if that's not a price of admission that you're willing to pay or if it makes you feel devalued or self-conscious, then don't date him. Move on. End this relationship. Or don't spend time with him out in public. Make this a private time only kind of relationship where you see him indoors with the curtains closed when you are free to touch him and be intimate with him. But you don't run around in public with him and then have to engage in kind of physical self-censorship to protect the perception that he and his wife are monogamous, which again, obviously is important to him, important to his wife, and maybe the only reason he's allowed to be with you or date other women. That DADT that you resent, the don't tell part of it, particularly the don't tell other people part of it, maybe the only reason you two are able to be with each other in the first place. And you should accept that half a loaf. And you can see that as an insult, something that makes you feel bad about yourself, bad about this relationship, or you can see it, you can change your perspective, shift your perspective, and see it as the sacrifice that you make and see it as what makes this relationship possible and make that sacrifice because the dick is worth it. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old cis woman calling, and my question is in regards to dating older older men. I've come to the self-realization that I'm really strongly attracted to men in their 60s or 70s. Think, you know, older silver fox kind of character. Um, I love these older men who have like gray hair, they dress well, they are well-spoken, they have a myriad of life experience and... All of that just gets this lady going. Um, and in saying that, I'm totally terrified, though, because it seems like such a taboo and I haven't told my friends. But I do want to explore this new found attraction of mine. And I know that there are 
sugar baby websites out there, but I'm not really down for that because the vibe from those types of websites is that it's an exchange of sorts and not really what you would use to find a meaningful relationship because ultimately I would like to date an older, older guy, but gosh, I'm just so darn scared of how to approach it because I don't want to come off as just a silly little girl or a gold digger or anything like that. Um, like for instance, the other day I saw that I saw this older gentleman in, in a cafe and Oh, I wanted to give him my number so bad, but I just thought, oh my God, like, what's he going to think? He's going to think I'm silly. Oh, so I just didn't. And I let that opportunity go by. So yeah, I guess I just wanted to ask, like, what do I, what do I do? How do I, how do I go about this? Of course, the sugar baby websites have a transactional vibe because those are transactional relationships. There is an exchange there of money for attention time, the girlfriend experience, and it is a commodified transactional relationship through those sugar baby websites. You're not interested in that kind of relationship. You would like to be on an equal footing with an older man that you're attracted to that you would like to date. I would encourage you just to get on dating apps, just to get on not, – not, not the Tinders, not the quickie hit ones, not to just look at the photos and swipe left or right. But get on OkCupid, okay, get on Match.com and you as a 29-year-old woman, I promise you, will attract the attention. You will get responses from older men. There are a lot of older men out there who would like to date younger women. Not all of these older men who are interested in dating younger women are interested in paying their rent or buying them cars. You will hear from those guys. You will have to pick through them. You will have to weed out the ones you aren't interested in dating, but you will hear from them. You will have options. You can also approach men in public if you want. Give them your phone number. I don't encourage men to approach women in public and give women their phone numbers because women are approached a lot in public by creepy men who are creeping on them and it can make a woman feel like public spaces aren't safe for them. But, you know, men, particularly older men, aren't approached that often in public by women. And even if the guy is unavailable, it's likely – even if the guy's gay, it's likely to make his day to be approached by an attractive young woman who wanted him to have – her phone number. Now, he might assume that you are interested in something transactional because otherwise, why would you be approaching him? You can let him know if he calls you or begins to text you that that is not the case. As for others perceiving you as a gold digger, well, you can't help how you are perceived by others. Uh, if you start to date somebody who's in his late 50s or 60s, an experienced, older, silver fox, your friends may make assumptions. If you don't want your friends making inaccurate assumptions, you might want to tell them where you're at right now, that you're interested in dating a significantly older guy or significantly older men and you're sort of fascinated by the age gap, the dynamic, the experience gap and you want – and it's making you wet and you want to jump in. And then when you show up at an event or a party – or you're spotted in public by a friend and you're with an older guy, they're going to think, oh, good for her. Yahtzee, she found the guy. She found the guy she wanted to date uh, in that age cohort from which she wanted to draw a potential short-term romantic partner or a long-term romantic partner. Who knows? And your friends are less likely than to think, ah, there's something gold diggery or something sugar baby. And your friends will not then think, oh, there's something gold diggery. 
And then your friends will not think when they spot you, oh, this is gold digger shit going on or this is sugar baby shit going on. They'll know it's just the shit you wanted to go on going on. Okay, before we get to your response calls, let's read some of your tweets. J. Marshall Freeman tweets, I'm listening to the Savage Lovecast, and I thought a caller said her husband had a reptile dysfunction. Reptile dysfunction. We haven't gone there yet, but if we ever get a question about a crocodile who expects oral but refuses to perform it, or a boa constrictor that likes to be choked, that call will definitely make it onto the show. Jerry O'Neill tweets, I'm a Magnum subscriber, and this week's Savage Lovecast still felt too short. I need more at Fake Dan Savage in my life. You can find more of me at Slog, the stranger's blog, where I post the Savage Love Letter of the Day. And for people who want even more, there's a whole lot of Savage Lovecast in the archives, as a slut called Nada reminds us. She tweets, it just occurred to me that Savage Lovecast is in its 690s. This has been a pretty nice batch of episodes. We like to think so. We've been coming at you weekly for more than a decade now. We are the OG podcasters, and we will be turning 700 very soon. Thank you to everyone who listens and everyone who subscribes. Me and Nancy and the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth love making this show for you. Here's to 700 more. And now your response calls. Yes, this is a comment for the caller on episode 697 whose uh, partner kept his eyes closed during the entirety of sex. Always like to try to give everybody the benefit of the doubt and think of what would be the most complimentary explanation. And in this case, one came to mind pretty easily, which is that he basically could be a very visual person who would come very quickly if he kept his eyes open because she's hot. He may just be keeping his eyes closed because he wants to last longer and have the sex be better. And it could simply be that you are too hot. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to the caller in 697 that was experiencing some postpartum sex issues. I'm an OB nurse and a lactation consultant, and I thought your advice was spot on. But since you mentioned breastfeeding, I'd just like to dig a little bit deeper into that. So the hormones that are responsible for lactation also put a woman into a menopause-like state. Ovulation and menstruation are suppressed, and so libido can tank and vaginal dryness and pain can be a definite issue. Even after weaning, it could take a long time for these hormones to return to normal. So when your wife is ready to try PIV, make sure you're engaging in lots of foreplay and using lots of lube. That's my number one tip to all my lactating couples. On another note, if she isn't breastfeeding, pain with intercourse is not normal at 11 months postpartum. She might want to see a pelvic floor physical therapist as pelvic floor dysfunction is common after childbirth or I'll talk to her OBGYN about it. Please just be patient with her. For the love of God, don't ask for an open relationship at this stage of the game and know that this is normal. It's just not talked about. Um, one study shows that only 41% of women resume PIV sex at six weeks postpartum when they're medically cleared. Hi, Dan. I think you gave really good advice to the gentleman in the caller who talked about his wife who had just had a baby uh, 11 months ago and wanted to... Uh, keep the sex going. One thing that I would add to your amazing advice is to give her the opportunity to find her sexuality alone. 
When you have a young baby, you get no time alone. (laughs) You constantly have this little thing attached to you. And I can't tell you how invaluable it was when my husband would take the kid out and leave me be with my vibrator and my porn and I could find uh, my sexuality again by myself, get used to my new postpartum body and uh, just enjoy myself the way that I wasn't ever able to with with my baby around so yeah take that kid to the fucking park man and let your wife run a bath and figure out her shit again man like have some patience there's nothing sexier in a partner than patience and understanding and we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. Or better yet, better sound quality, use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your call and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. If you enjoyed the Savage Lovecast, I promise you'll also enjoy Blabbermouth, the Strangers News and Review podcast hosted every week by Eli Sanders out every Wednesday. My Dirty Little Porn Film Festival, Hump, will be in Eugene, Oregon, Bellingham, Washington, and Brooklyn, New York this week. Head to humpfilmfest.com to get your tickets or to find out when Hump is coming to a city near you. Follow me on Twitter at Savage. Follow Dr. Caitlin McDonough on Twitter at Ideaspermatheca. That's I-D-E-A-S-P-E-R-M-A-T-H-E-C-A. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech's heavy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.